Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to Venus for hosting our show. The Definitive Rap was established to unapologetically bring the truth to the forefront, to the surface, whether it's about politics or human interest. The Definitive Rap reports the bitter truth with zero sugarcoating. Our topic today is get refusal. What does that mean? A get is a dated and witnessed document written in Aramaic where the husband states that he is divorcing his wife and severing all ties with her according to the Jewish law. This document is then placed in her hands. In order for a woman to remarry, this document is critical. A woman cannot remarry without a get. If her husband refuses to grant her the get, she becomes an aguna, a chained woman, because she is stuck in limbo and cannot move forward in life. Civil courts in the United States are recognizing that refusing to give a divorce is abuse. But thank God there is an organization that addresses the Aguna crisis. That organization is called ORA. With us today to talk about this worldwide crisis and what ORA does is Keshet Star Esquire. She is the CEO of the Organization for the Resolution of Agunot, ORA the nonprofit organization addressing the Aguna Jewish divorce refusal crisis on a case-by-case basis worldwide. At ORA, Keshet oversees advocacy and early intervention initiatives designed to assist individuals seeking a Jewish divorce, along with prevention initiatives to eliminate abuse from the Jewish divorce process. Keshet has written for outlets such as the Times of Israel, The Forward, and Haaretz, and frequently presents on issues related to Jewish divorce, domestic abuse, and the intersection between civil and religious divorce processes. Keshet has also authored academic work focused on get refusal and domestic abuse. She's a Wexner Field Fellow and was named one of the Jewish Week's 36 under 36, a graduate of the University of Michigan and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Keshet lives in central New Jersey with her husband and four young children. Keshet, welcome to the Definitive Wrap. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. When law-abiding citizens are taken hostage and chained, it riles up people because it is inhumane. And for someone who wants out of a marriage and is unable to, based on interviews with those who are currently in the midst of that crisis or have been, this is what it feels like to them. This is what they have told me. They feel like prisoners. Keshet, Please help our audience understand the plight of someone who wants out of a marriage and whose spouse is refusing to let them go and what ORA does to rectify this crisis. Absolutely. So what is so challenging about being in a situation of get refusal is that, first of all, there's no end point necessarily. Unlike a civil divorce, which might be long and nasty and really difficult, you're not going to be civilly divorcing for 30 years, right? At a certain point, it ends and you move on. 
But what's so scary, honestly, about get refusal is that in some extreme cases, get refusal can go on for decades. And even though that's not necessarily common, there's a lot of fear and stress about the get. Am I ever going to have this freedom? And am I, am I going to spend my entire adult life stuck, unable to move forward? And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that it's not just about remarriage. People say all the time, well, if she's not remarrying right now, then what's the big deal? But first of all, not knowing if you're ever going to get a get is very different than wanting to remarry today. But second of all, it's about not having choices around this incredibly intimate aspect of your life. Am I a married woman or a single woman? And closure too. Yes, and closure, absolutely. I've worked with a few women over the years who were terminally ill. And one thing that was very important to them was having the spiritual closure of the get process before they passed away. It is really about a spiritual freedom and a fundamental human freedom more than it is about whether you are, are looking to, you know, find a shot and get out on the dating scene immediately. That may or may not be the plan, but that's not really the point. And so what we do at Ora, we work with people in this situation. We have about 70 cases at any given time, 70 to 75 of women and a few men as well who are trying to obtain a get. Most of the time, these people have been separated for several years. They might have a civil divorce or might not. They have gone through the beast in the religious court system, and it's really gone as far as it can go. And they don't have anywhere to go next. So what we do at that point is we create options. And that could mean really public things, having demonstrations outside their home, outside their shul, if their shul supporting them, you know, things along those lines, social media campaigns. And it can be also much more behind the scenes, trying to figure out who is this person's support network and how can we get at that support network so they're really encouraged to give the get and move forward. And in addition to the work we do with people who are actively struggling, what we want most of all is to change the Jewish community so that no one has to struggle like this in the future. So we have a helpline where people call when they're thinking about divorce or just getting started and they don't even know where to begin. We also do a lot of education and awareness in the community about get refusal as a form of domestic abuse and also about the halachic prenup because there's actually a lot that regular citizens in the Jewish community can do to make a difference on this issue. Right. So, you know, it's true when you said uh, earlier that uh, people wait decades to get the get, to receive the get. Um, I, in fact, know of women who have told me that they have been agunas for 30 years and it's it's mind boggling. And these these women are older at, mm-hmm. at this point. And and they've said to me, it's like you said, it's not always about about remarriage, but they're not even interested in remarriage at this point. They've just had it. They just want to know that they're done. Um, Absolutely. What methods does Ora use to convince a man to get a get? Great question. So the first thing we do in every case, and I always make sure to say this because I think people don't realize that necessarily about our work. We always reach out to the other side. We start with gathering information. We These are complex cases. There might be 
civil court proceedings and victim proceedings and criminal proceedings. There were any number of things going on. So we first sort through the whole situation and make sure we understand what's going on. We then always reach out to the get refuser and give them an opportunity to share their perspective. And they might speak to us for, you know, 10 hours and they might curse us out and hang up the phone. That's their choice and their decision. But there is always, always an outreach to the other side. Sometimes in certain cases, building rapport with the get refuser or with their supporters is actually enough to resolve it. And that's part of why we always start there. Sometimes if you really talk through what is your end game here, what are you trying to do? I will sometimes ask people, what are you afraid is going to happen when you give the get? So if you give the get, you know, this afternoon, what are you afraid is going to happen next? And how can we think through other ways to manage those fears as opposed to holding on to the get? Because I really believe very passionately that get refusal is corrosive for everyone. And the get refuser is ultimately harmed too. Even if they think they're getting something, they don't come out ahead in the long run. So sometimes helping them or their, their attorneys, their rabbis, their family, whoever is really in their ear, helping people become aware of how damaging this is and how much less they end up with in the long term in a lot of respects, that can sometimes on its own resolve things. If that doesn't work, again, we the way we believe in doing pressure is that, first of all, Everything we do is civilly legal, so we're not, you know, busting any kneecaps, and it's also halakhically permissible. So we work with our postgam and with individual rabbis involved in cases to figure out how do we make sure that the get we end up with at the end of the day is 100% kosher and there are no concerns afterwards. Within those boundaries, we do whatever we think is going to work, and it could mean, you know, helping the get refuser again see a bigger perspective, access, you know, some psychological support if that's an issue, or it can mean building public pressure, which can include having their name listed in different newspapers, adding their photo to our website. If you go to our website, you can see a list of current cases with recalcitrant spouses. It can mean demonstrations. If they're about to get honored at the you know, young professional leadership dinner, you know, really making some waves on that. And the goal is to, the goal is to obtain a get. That's the ultimate goal. But it's also to create some accountability that you can't live your life as if nothing's happening and everything's great while you're also holding someone hostage. So really making it difficult for the person to live their day-to-day life. And in the digital world we live in, having a digital footprint about your domestic abuse is not helpful to people. And get refusers will call us five years after they give a get, complaining that on page 12 of their, you know, Google results, there's a broken link to an old, you know, Facebook post about a rally and ask for our help in removing that. And so we see that the digital footprint really bothers them. And it makes sense because you apply for a job, someone Googles you. And so having a Google search results about things that you've done that are not socially appropriate, um, really can impact the person. Other options could include filing litigation and trading it for the get. Um, Working within the civil process, one thing we really specialize in at ORA is that we work at the crossroads between the halachic system and the civil system. So we also spend a lot of time 
training attorneys on individual cases and also broadly about you're in the middle of a civil litigation, here's an opportunity to bring the get into the process in a way that's halakhically viable and that also, you know, works legally, which is not easy to do due to constitutional and separation of church and state, but there are ways to do it. So really helping bridge the systems so that the individual is in a position of as much strength as possible with regards to the gap. Mm-hmm. So what excuse, well, I would imagine that um, anyone who is in the position of uh, needing your services is, it has exhausted uh, most methods to obtain their get. So when you do speak to these uh, recalcitrant individuals, what, what, what do they say as to why they haven't given the get or that why are they refusing to give the get? What, what's the typical excuse you would receive? So the interesting thing is many of them start with complimenting us. It's very common, like, oh, I'm such a fan of your work. Like, you go after those guys, you know. (laughs) This is great. But my case is different. And there's usually some version of my ex is crazy. If I'm on a call with someone and they actually use the word crazy, I kind of like highlight it. Um, it, It's a very commonly used term. My ex is crazy. Um, And they will often say this is sort of, the only thing I have, that there's a feeling of, you know, I'm struggling with the legal system, I'm struggling with the halakhic system, the get is the only tool I have to protect myself. And what you'll often hear get refusers say is that I'm not a get refuser, get refusal is terrible. But that's not me, because I'm gonna give the get once my divorce is done, or once I get what I want, or once I feel like I've been compensated for for the ways in which I feel like I've been hurt. And what's common with all those things is that basically humans are good at a lot of things, but one thing we're not good at is being objective about conflicts that we're in. So like, we're not, even if you're having a fight with your neighbor about, you know, chickens getting out of the coop, right? We're not good at being objective about those types of No one can. Yeah. And so when someone says, I'm going to be the judge and jury of the get, and I'm going to give the get when I feel like it's fair to, you are in really dangerous territory because we just can't be objective about that. And that's why we need third parties. And if Aura is advocating for a get, that means third parties have weighed in and have said a get needs to be given here. And the get refuser is saying, nope, I'm the judge and jury. I'm going to make a decision about when this should be given. And no one's going to tell me what to do. And in every other situation, when it comes to the civil divorce, if you can't work it out yourselves, it ultimately goes to a judge. And there's a third party who bangs on the gavel and who makes a call. And so the lack of that third party control in the get is a real challenge. And it's so important to know that most get refusers do have sympathetic stories. They really do. Um, very often when you speak with them, they have a way of presenting their arguments that kind of pulls on your heartstrings. They're also smart. So they're rarely going to say, you know, I love control and this was a great opportunity to get it. So here I am. They're going to have a better story than that. But to really understand as a community that when individuals become the judge and jury of their own cases, bad things happen. And that's really what is occurring when we seek out refusal. Keshet, at what point during the separation period of a marriage is an individual considered a get refuser? And when does Ora step in? I mean, is it, is it after a few weeks, a few months, a few years? At what point? 
Very good question. It's definitely to some extent a case-by-case analysis. What oh, The way OVER works is that we work in partnership with rabbinic leadership, with legal counsel. And so we generally need some sort of a baked-in ruling in order to take on a case. We also find that without some sort of a third-party ruling, the cases get very stuck in a he said, she said. Now, that ruling might come very quickly. It might come later. What we would suggest on a policy level is that once we know a marriage is over, we're not in counseling anymore, maybe one person wants to go to counseling, the other person is saying 100%, I'm not willing to do this. The marriage, once the marriage is over, we really want to see a get as soon as possible. And the reason is we just don't know how a civil divorce is going to go. It could be really amicable and everyone's just being like, you know, behaving like mensches, or it can be really drawn out and nasty. We also are seeing in the legal system a significant backlog post-COVID. So today, a contested divorce can be a five to eight year process. And we are taking a big gamble with the assumption that after five to eight years of nasty, expensive litigation, someone's going to be thrilled to hand over again. And so on a policy level, there's a real value to trying to push it as early in the process as you can. That being said, there's always common sense involved. I spoke to someone once who said, you know, I'm, you know, you have to help me get my get, you know, I'm stuck. And I said, well, you know, when did you ask for a get? Talk me through, you know, the history. And she said on Tuesday. And I said on a Tuesday or like this past Tuesday. (laughs) And it turned out it was this past Tuesday. So we said, okay, you know, we'll give them a week. I never want to rush to labeling someone as a get refuser when they haven't quite earned that yet. Um, but again, we, we want to see gets given early. And we also, because get refusal is really about power and control, and it's a form of domestic abuse, when someone's coming in and they have a textbook history of domestic abuse in the relationship, we already have our antenna up that the get may be a problem, even if you know, it's only been two days and no one's said or done anything. So that might be a case where we do a lot of guidance and strategizing early on, because we have a feeling that if you have a controlling individual, they're not going to be so excited to give the get quickly and easily. So you're mentioning control and domestic abuse. Um, Keshet, what is the profile of a get refuser? Um, Aside from our audience's benefit, I will tell you why I'm so personally interested. I'm also a matchmaker, and I've had men who were previously get refusers reach out to me seeking remarriage. In each and every case, none will admit to me that they were get refusers. They will state lines such as, I wanted a different based in Jewish court, um, or that the get was in the rabbi's office waiting for my ex to pick it up, or even my ex-wife really didn't want the divorce. She just wanted to punish me because she was mad at something I did. When I look into their story, I typically discovered that there is a totally different version from what they tell everyone else. But I'm not in the position to judge. I'm not a judge and jury. But not only that, but as a matchmaker, my experiences with former get refusers is that when they get into future relationships and marriages and remarriage, the stories I sometimes hear from new partners is that they endured abuse from the former get refuser. So I ask again, what is the profile of a get refuser? 
What are the red flags in a dating relationships? And would you say, is it safe to date a person who had previously withheld a get from his wife? Really important question. There's always variation, but we're talking sort of the typical profile. And we've actually participated in studies that looked at history of domestic abuse and Akuno, and there is a significant correlation. So over 90% of our Aguna cases, even close to 95%, have a history of domestic abuse, in many cases, multiple types of abuse. And about in a recent study, close to 20% of the Aguna surveyed had experienced strangulation as part of the abuse. And I mention that only because on the domestic abuse side, we know that when someone's strangling someone else in the relationship, that now is a relationship that has a significant risk of a homicide. So these are very, very dangerous and serious relationships. So when someone is a pretty committed get refuser, you know, they're, they're doing it for a while, there is a good chance that they engage in an abusive manner. And the If that's not bad news enough, the other bad news we know is that most abusers continue to abuse in their future relationships and efforts to really intervene in abuse. They've been successful with teenagers, um, but when it comes to adults, it is really difficult to change those patterns. And unfortunately, many, not all, but in many cases, abusers grew up in households that were abusive. And so it's almost like part of the blueprint of our our relationship, you know, brains that this is what relationships are. This is how relationships work. And it's difficult to change that. And so while you can never say never, and, you know, we have the opportunity to do teshuva and to overcome things, you also there's a big, big risk in entering a relationship with someone who has that history and it's very important to realize that when abusers change, in the rare situations when they do, they take responsibility for their behavior. And when someone says, well, my ex was a crazy you-know-what, and what else could I have done? That's not holding yourself accountable for your behavior and your choices. So language like that, you know, you really want to be aware of. In terms of red flags, obviously with relationship history, if you know that the person has done abusive things, that's a giant waving flag. But even in more subtle ways with people who haven't, you know, had that much of a previous relationship history, things you want to look out for, again, what's so tricky about control is that it's not presented as control. It's presented as I love you so much. I want to spend all my time with you. And you look up six months later and you don't have relationships with your friends or your family anymore. Um, It's presented in Again, I love you and I want to spend time with you and we have something really special. But again, a healthy relationship enhances the rest of your life. You feel more confident at work. You have deeper relationships with your friends. There might be an adjustment because you're busy and you're not going on girls trips to, you know, to Florida in the way that you were. But it doesn't, a healthy relationship does not take you away from the rest of your life. And if your relationship is, it's something to be very, very mindful of. Also, friends and family, Um, if the people you love are not thrilled that you're in this relationship, that is something, especially if you have healthy relationships with those people, that's a flag. Um, Because one is not able to be objective. 
for themselves. Exactly. We don't have that objectivity. And, and I can't emphasize this enough, abusers are really charming. They are nicer than most people. Yeah. I had this experience once I was an intern in law school and I was working on a really abusive case. And I had like a, you know, this was before the days of digital files. So I had this like brick I was schlepping around with me and I was waiting for the elevator in family court and waiting and waiting. And this guy started just chatting with me. And I don't even know, we talked about the weather, whatever it was, but I remember thinking like, oh, he's such a nice guy. Like it was such a nice conversation. It's so pleasant. And then we get in the elevator. We go up, get off at the same floor, go into the same courtroom. And he was the defendant. He was the abuser. And Mm. I knew this man for five minutes and like my mind was blown. And so again, it's very, very charming. And that makes it really hard to be tuned into some of the subtle things. But again, friends and family, gut feelings. Many Aguno will say I had a gut, but people told me it was normal to keep trying that he was shy. If you have a gut, I really feel like Hashem has, you know, God's given us a gift in terms of intuition and gut instincts and pay attention to them. And the other thing I would watch out for, I guess, two other things. One is over the top. You're the most amazing person I've ever met in my entire life. Even though we've spent an hour together, like I'm sure you are amazing, but it should be proportional. If it's very disproportional, that's something to notice. And also boundary blurring. The way abusers work is that they chip at boundaries. So I will tell young women, for example, whether you want to be Shomadigia or not, that's your own decision. But if you set a boundary that I don't want to get physical in relationships and you're getting pushed to, that's a problem because it's a boundary you set around your body that's now being chipped away at. And so really paying attention to when you set a boundary. I have an exam coming up and let's just put this on pause for two days and then we'll talk and they can't respect that. You really, even if they have the, like, I just, I miss you so much. I can't be away from you. It's always a nice reason, but when you set boundaries, if they cannot honor and respect those boundaries, that is something to be very concerned about because abuse always starts with boundary blurring. And what about going through personal belongings? Does that ever, does that ever come up too? Absolutely. And One thing abusers will often do is that they're charming when it's worth it to be, but they are often kind of nasty to people who don't matter. So to the busboy at the, you know, restaurant or to, you know, again, the the bellhop at the hotel to sort of like service professionals to often actually a lot of nastiness towards small animals will come up in abusive histories, which I mean, again, if they try to kill your cat, that's a bad sign. Don't do it. Um, but again, these these sort of subtle ways, like, are you, are like, how do they act when like there's not so much incentive to be really, really nice? How do they treat you know the secretary, not the boss? Um, right. Paying attention to those types of dynamics is right. is really helpful. Also, we know that there are cases where it is the woman who refuses to accept the get while the man, the man wants out. Percentage-wise, how often is it that a man is an agun in contrast to a woman who is an aguna? Also, isn't it true that a man has options available to him if the wife refuses a get, such as he's able to get a hetermea rabbanim, which, is an, which in essence means that 100 rabbis agree that a particular man is permitted to remarry even though the wife refuses to accept the get? So I would say in the numbers we see, it's about 95% men refusing, 5% women refusing. And 
I mean, I, I don't know if all women know that they can refuse. So it could be that if it was a more widely known, you'd have more people trying it. But I actually think the Hetzer Mayer Rabbanim really plays into that. Now, what happens to be a legitimate based-in is not going to issue a Hetzer Mayer Rabbanim other than very extreme situations. So, okay. for example, if the wife is in a permanent vegetative state, you know, a really tragic situation, not just, you know, we're in a nasty divorce. There are rogue batidin that for a, an exorbitant sum of money will get you a sketchy heter and then you have to get them to marry you because nobody else will. It's not fully accepted. But another angle here is that if a woman were to have children in a new relationship without obtaining a kosher get, those children are considered illegitimate under Jewish law. They're right. considered manzerim, and that's a, a huge problem where for men, you don't have that concern. So if they get a sketchy heter that they paid for, and then they fly the rabbi out to marry them, their children from those new relationships don't have the same kinds of problems. And you do see women saying, you know, I might not be observant anymore, but the idea that I would be putting my child into a situation where they don't have the choice to become more religious or to move to Israel or to just make the life choices they might want to make, I can't sort of have that on my conscience. Keshet, how can people find out about Ora? You can find us online at www.getora.org. And you can also follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook. We post when we have cases going live, when we have, you know, events or demonstrations. And we, when we also do a lot of community education. So we go to schools and present in a in an age-appropriate way about get refusal and the halakhic prenup, and we do scholars and residents in communities. And so if you care about this issue, please connect with us, and we would love to find a way to bring this message to your community. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you for all you are doing. Thank you so much for having me and for the thoughtful questions. Thank you to Venus, and thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.